Our lives are not just shaped by stories, they are stories. This has been something that I have been made acutely aware of since my father died, because stories are all we have to cling to. We don't think about the statistics of his life, how many miles he might have run in his 80 years with so many marathons and so many walks and exercise in between. We don't think about his career and how many surgeries he might have performed or how many books he read or anything else. We remember the stories. We remember things like the way when he and I were training for the Seattle to Portland bike ride and I was 11, one of his grand schemes to spend more time with me as I was approaching teendom, he taught me that roadkill was called road pizza. And we would laugh and laugh and talk about what kind of road pizza we saw as we rode miles and miles of Pacific Northwest back roads. The old flattened ones were just plain cheese while the really gruesome ones were meat lovers. Sometimes you'd get an extra mushroom one or a plain pepperoni, but it was such a beautiful, beautiful time of just being together, sharing a common joke, laughter, the beauty of outdoors. This story and so many more make up the story of my dad's life. The same is true for scripture. The genealogy parts, the law parts, those don't capture our attention like the stories, right? Joseph and his brothers and his coat of many colors, Sarai and Abram, Judith and more. So many stories that capture our attention and shape the way we look at God's relationship with God's people. One particularly Dramatic and sordid tale is in our lectionary text this morning. Our first Samuel passage starts when Samuel was working for the high priest Eli, but the story began far before that. Samuel's mother, Hannah, you may recall, had been unable to have children. And in the first century, a woman's worth was tied almost exclusively to her ability to have children particularly male children who could become heirs. Every year, this woman, Hannah, who was worthless in the eyes of her community because she could not provide her husband with a son, would take a donation and go to the tabernacle to ask God to have mercy on her, to ask God to make her life have meaning. One year, she was so furtive in her prayers that the head priest, Eli, actually thought she was drunk. <laughs> Eli was not accustomed to that level of emotion and desperation for God. Nonetheless, Eli believed her that she was not, in fact, drunk, but just desperate for God's grace, and he blessed her. She did conceive a baby, a boy. She called him Samuel, which means God hears and she promised him to God's service, one of the many bargains she had made as she was desperately praying for a child. So when baby Samuel was old enough, Hannah obediently took him, her miracle child, to the tabernacle to be of servants to God and to the priests. Hannah, 
also, by the way, was blessed with five more children who she was able to grow old with. But Samuel was dedicated to the service of God. One night, after he had been at the tabernacle for a while, Samuel heard a voice after he went to bed. The voice was not Eli's, but God's. It spoke to Samuel of a new order of things, because the old ways were corrupt. Eli, to be fair, was not a bad high priest, except for that he allowed really bad things to happen under his leadership. The tradition at the time was that the high priest and his sons would all serve as priests together at the tabernacle. Eli's sons, unlike Eli, by all accounts, should never have been priests. They took the best portions of the sacrifices for themselves. They hoarded, stealing for the piety of the people, and even worse, regularly raped the women who served at the tabernacle grounds. They had to be stopped. They were not only inappropriately representing God and not doing their part to minister to the community, they were oppressing, abusing, and using the community through violence. Eli hadn't been listening. Eli, remember, looked at devotion and desperation in Hannah and assumed drunkenness. Eli his heart was hardened to God's voice. So God spoke to Samuel. He told him that the old ways were finished and that a new twist to the story was coming forth, one that would provide care and protection and provision for God's people, all of God's people. Once Eli and his sons were removed from their power, Samuel stepped into this place of ministry and things were very different. He did not just spend time in the tabernacle waiting for people to come to him. He brought God's ministry of prophecy to the people. He traveled. He interacted with folk. He brought change with his life and with his ministry. God hears. One thing we see for sure in all of the stories that make up the story of God and God's people in the Bible and beyond is that the trajectory of God's story is always good news for the oppressed. It is something that provides a more just, more equitable, and more loving future. The arc of this grand story that began even before the beginning is ever-expanding and always more inclusive than the chapter before. The stories that make up our nation, however, are a mixed bag. They're inspiring and pride-inducing stories of a melting pot of people who are looking for a better life and found an opportunity for freedom and a future for their children. We have stories of a world power who protects and stands up against evil regimes, an example to the world. And then there is the underbelly. Stories that sometimes don't even make it into the textbooks. Stories that make all of our stomachs turn. Stories of the mass genocide of indigenous peoples so that the white European settlers could have expansive swaths of land. Stories of human beings, children of God, kidnapped from their homelands and forced into slavery for generations. Stories of immigrants with brown skin being murdered, used, 
and exploited because of their color. Racism has been with us since the beginning of our story in this country. And this weekend, as we remember the words of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., it is a good time to be reminded of this sordid part of our past. It started when humanity began looking primarily at what makes us different instead of what makes us belong to each other. It's what motivated Dr. King to work toward human rights with his life. It's what inspired him to write words that we all read this morning. And it's what killed him on the balcony of the Lorraine Hotel in Memphis, Tennessee. Far too young. The story of our past is one that's inequality has created gen generations of turmoil in families, trauma, mass incarceration, poverty, and so much more. We must not assume that the toll that racism has taken on our country has only cost those who have been victims of it either. This poison has made all of us sick. As long as anyone is oppressed, no one is free. Racism is a sin and it is bondage to us all. San Antonio, where we are all blessed to live, is a diverse and vibrant city. And yet, racism is alive and well here too. A contractor who came to my house this week told me of how he was told to leave a home where he was working recently because he was speaking in Spanish. In the United States, black students were more than three times as likely to attend schools with fewer than 60% of teachers that met all state certifications. Latinas, Latino students were twice as likely to attend such schools. If you are a black woman in our country, you can expect to earn only 62 cents for every dollar that a white man makes. If you are a Hispanic woman in our country, you will only earn 54 cents for every dollar a white man makes. African American men working full time earn only 72% of what a Caucasian man would make. Black women are more likely to receive late or no prenatal care, and they face nearly three times the risk of pregnancy-related death. Three times! Babies born to a well-educated, middle-class black mother are more likely to, to die before their first birthday than babies born to poor white mothers with less than a high school education. In 2016, the infant mortality rate for whites was 4.9% compared to 11.4% for Blacks and 9.4% for Native Americans. These statistics reflect bleak stories from ugly chapters of our nation's history. They shed light on something that is wrong here. And like Samuel, we need to hear God's voice and respond. As Christians, we're called to change the trajectory of the story and to make it a more loving one, a more equitable one. As Samuel was, we are awakened by God's voice. Like Philip in our gospel text, we're invited to come and see what the power of God's love can do. We are meant not just to take 
one weekend out of the year and admire the words of a martyr like Dr. King. Not just to proclaim with our lips that all people are God's children, of course we believe that, but to take up the work, which is God's work, and carry on. To wake up to it. To not get defensive and say, oh, you know, we knew this, we're not a part of the problem, but instead to say, God, we're awake to this now. Show us what to do next. Show us how to battle the systems of racism that keep down children of God. To use our privilege for the quality of others. To bring reformation to these systems and healing for us all. We are people of reformation, remember Lutherans. We are a diverse church. This is us. When we talk about black and brown bodies, we're talking about parts of our body of Christ. We can work toward a better future. We are made up of stories. And the very best, most inclusive story of all is the story of God and God's people, of which we are a part. It makes all the difference to all of us. And all of God's children have sacred worth. So let us, this beautiful, diverse body of Christ, step forward, wake up, and do God's work of reconciliation. Amen.